Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome back to Book Shambles after a week off. We hope you enjoyed our 100th episode with Brian Cranston. Uh, back to a normal episode this week, which means some admin off the top. This coming Monday, June 4th, at Albert Hall is the first of our live Book Shambles recordings. The guests are Alan Moore and Lucy Green. And then the following Monday, June 11th, Adam Buxton and Hannah Fryer are our guests. Uh, it's a brilliant lineup. There are still tickets available, so go to the Royal Albert Hall website site and you can get those and then of course on June 15 is Space Shambles hosted by Robin and Chris Hadfield in the main hall guests already announced for that apart from Robin and Chris are Jim Elkaleely and Stuart Lee and Rusty Schweikart Festival the Spoken Nerd and uh, lots more we've also announced three more science speakers uh, this week in uh, Helen Chersky and Chris Lintot and Susie Imber and we've still got lots of other amazing guests that we're going to keep secret until the night tickets for that are still available as well Royal Albert Hall website start at nine quid so make sure you come along to that And we've had our first live online book club a couple of weekends ago. We had a Google Hangout with uh, myself and Robin and Josie uh, talking to lots of listeners about Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos. Uh, There are a few teething problems. It's fine. We're going to rectify it and modify it a bit for the next one we do. So keep an eye out for that. So obviously, thanks very much to all our Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter... It's patreon.com slash bookshambles. And the final thing to keep your eye out for on Cosmic Shambles Twitter or the website, cosmicshambles.com, is our Richard Feynman documentary, which the trailer went out a couple of weeks ago. The full version will be out uh, very, very soon. That's hosted by Robin with new interviews with uh, Brian Cox and Helen Chersky and Leonard Melodnov and uh, John Butterworth, lots of people. So that will be on the website and YouTube and the Science Shambles podcast in the very near future. And now on to this week's episode with our guest, Matt Haig. Yes. So welcome to uh, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, this week, uh, well, I'll tell you in a moment who our special guest is. First of all, I just have to say I have some very exciting news. I now have, from going to that shop, four more Guy N. Smith books. Do you know, I should introduce our guest, by the way, it's Matt Haig. Yes, hello. I, I'm, yeah, I don't, so I feel stupid. No, the off. do not feel stupid. Guy N. Smith is very much the niche. For, the, for those who, uh, oh, you'll get an idea for this. Uh, th- these are more the mainstream He's ones. This is uh, the laureate of crab-based fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, when wow. it comes to giant killer crabs attacking the coast of Wales... Uh-huh. And sometimes locusts as well. Robin Hitchcock is a great fan of them as well. Uh, but anyway, so we've got um, the undead. Only death could live and move in that dark, still place. Any crabs? Look at that Any one. crabs? No, that? no yeah, crabs. Undead. This is all crab-free. This stuff. Warhead. The old gods were threatening mankind with the ultimate holocaust. Oh God! Satan's snowdrop. Its fragrance was the foul stench of evil. And quite simply, with wow. no tagline, carnivore. <laughs> so there we are. That's uh, that's the nice. work of Guy and Smith. And uh, 
Well, we're going to stop. We're going to talk about your work now, and we're going to get on to. Uh, I read How to Stop Time, which I really loved, which is your most recent novel. Uh, is that fair to say? It is, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, yes, it is. I'm, I'm just not double checking because some of these people are AC Grayling. <laughs> do he sneaks in books all the time? So you do think thinking it's his most recent book, and he's written another one over the weekend. I, I have written one since, but yeah, published. It's the most recent. That must be exciting to sort of be like, oh yeah, that one I did. Yeah, that that one. I've been focused on something else well, for two years, but, but no one knows. Publishing slow. It's yeah. slow. It's not like podcasts. It's not like you know. It, it it's two years. Basically, you finish writing the first draft and then you go through editing. And then I, I'm with quite a speedy publisher, Canongate. They're quite quick. Mm. They generally do it within a year of it being finished. But yeah, I'm always frustrated at how slow it is. And I, I'm quite prolific, but that's only because I write short books with very short chapters. Well, How to Stop Time isn't that short a book. It, it's, it, I, I'd it's, say it's shorter it's, it's, than you think it is. It's the correct, do you know what, 300 pages is the correct length for me. I can't do more than that. But half of those pages are blank because I have very short chapters. Oh, Oh, that's smart. Actually, I I think the shortest, yeah, uh, the the most recent one, Notes on a Nervous Planet, which is non-fiction... That yes. that is a but that's a different kind of book, obviously, because that's that is. Well, we'll yeah. get on to that. But how to stop time for those? Can you give a little pricey? I suppose it's it's a very interesting yeah. concept behind. Okay. Um, it's a an old man who's not immortal, but he's improbably old. He's four hundred thirty nine years old. He was born in fifteen eighty one. He's called Tom Hazard. His original name was Estienne because he was a French Huguenot refugee coming to England, um, being persecuted. Um, But anyway, he's not a mortal. He aged normally up until the age of 11. Then he hit puberty, and then he developed a condition called anageria, um, which basically means he, he, everything slowed down. Every bodily function, every organ, aged 15 times slower than it would. So basically, I I reversed the science of a real-life condition called progeria. Mm -hmm which is a very tragic thing where people um, die at a young age, of old age. And um, he it's about how he lives in the present. So it's just about a person who has known grief because every single person he's loved or connected with in his life has obviously died. And um, it's taking someone in that kind of miserable situation and seeing if you can find any sort of um, point of carrying on. Well, it does. It goes. I mean, what I, one of the things that I loved about it because I, I was saying to you before, and I read it in a day because uh, I just it was one of those things where c- c- I can't go on stage yet. I've still got twenty <laughs> pages. Because, and what I love is is though you don't feel any sharp change in style, but within this story there are moments where it's quite. A, it, it's like a melancholy, philosophical, very introverted uh, book. Then there's the element of historical drama. Then there's some the, uh, romance, and then there's also incredible, especially towards the end. It's a, it's there's a, it's a proper thriller in terms of what well, I, I, I felt it was, and I thought that's what was great. There was so much going on in it. I wanted to make sure he was a teacher. I, I like the idea of a history teacher who was history. Huh. I, I also like the idea of someone who's lived for four hundred thirty-nine years old, and um, there's basically this shadowy secret organization the Sanageria Society the Albatross Society and they can set him up anywhere you know every eight years he's got to basically change his identity so people don't um, get a clue about what's going on with Anageria and there's all kinds of reasons to keep that secret but he could choose to be like living on a lemon grove in Sicily he could be in the Maldives he could be anywhere but he's chosen you know 
state secondary school in Tower Hamlets mm. as the most fulfilling way to spend his existence, you know, to actually be around people, to be, you know, a guardian of time looking after school kids and shaping the future. Well, you've, before we were just talking about the fact that this is, you said the first book where you've just gone, oh, I can't just go, this will probably be what happens to him in 1617. You actually had to go, right, I better read some books about what happened in 1617. Yeah. So that is, what were you... Felt like work. <laughs> Almost. Was that a good thing in some ways? Do you sometimes? Because I, I can imagine for we'll talk about later on about the uh, uh, your 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 partner Andrea figures in in both your, your uh, most recent nonfiction works, but that bit where sometimes it is you can feel that creativity is staring out the window and a partner can look at you and just go. Well, why don't you go and do something? You go, I am doing something. <laughs> I am staring out the window. And the last time I stared out the window, that actually made some money for us and was why we could go on holiday. <laughs> so I'm going to have to keep looking at the clouds for a while. And and you do sometimes go, it still doesn't feel like a proper job, does it? Because no. you go, well, why couldn't those ideas, why can't I wake up and go, right, I need ideas for 20 pages. There we go. They've come to me. Oh, yeah. Now let's get on with the rest of the day. And very often the ideas don't come when you're sort of staring out of the window. You know, that's often just moments of blankness. Normally, yeah, I like to think, you know, I'm Wordsworth and needing some daffodils around me. But generally, when I get an idea for a new novel, I'm nowhere near a laptop. I'm actually doing something else, um, something practical or going for a run or something. And, yeah, so, yeah, but totally, totally, I, I... I, I, it does feel like hard work, and you can feel actually physically tired after a day of writing. But it is—it it looks like you're just being lazy, and especially like with someone like me. And, and I think a lot of writers nowadays they have their word document open, and then they have sort of, sort of like Twitter by the side of the word document, and they flip between raging about the world and then going back into the yeah. Calm or space. when you, when you go, oh, I won't get distracted. I'm going to be writing now. Oh, do you know what? I will just Google that because I think I'm really interested. Oh, I'm on Twitter. Oh, half an hour has gone by. Oh, great. Yeah, time is Don't even realise. Yeah, totally. How to stop time would be disconnecting Twitter, perhaps. But, um, yeah, and I'm terrible with that. Although I have realised the more uh, time I, inverted commas, waste on social media, the more books I write. So... I don't know. Everyone says, you know, obviously they think if you're tweeting all the time, you're not writing. But I tweet my most, and I'm tweeting a name rubbish most of the time. Um, but the more of that I do, the more books I write. I, d- I have no idea about quality, but, you know, in terms of word counts. It it's also seem to not make all the time, is it? When people go, you tweet a lot, and you go, well, actually, what happens is sometimes at the end of 45 minutes of writing or you're on a train, you have a thought, you let that out of your head. Yeah, and then you go back. There was an inter- there's a book by a guy called Leonard uh, Melodnov, uh, who uh, has he, he wrote a couple of books with Stephen Hawking, and and more recently he's been writing books about how our mind works, and uh, the most recent one's called Elastic, and it's about elastic thinking. Oh, I just I just got the um, the the Guardian review. I just saw that that was in. That was being reviewed, and it it looked really exciting to me because they were like in praise of procrastination and drinking, and I was like, superb, thank well, you. Well, I, I did an event with him the other day, and he said, you know, one of his main things is to go to like English pubs. He's from America, and just talk to people, just talk to. Them. He said one thing I'd found interesting. He said that is one of the problems we have creatively is you need empty spaces. 
Now, sometimes what happens is if your empty space then becomes filled with social media, yeah. you don't have that. I mean, it's it's a bit like I've, I think we've talked about this probably on the show before, but sometimes I worry about the lack of boredom uh, where like for someone my son's age who's 10 years old, there's stuff going on. There's always stuff. And when stuff's not happening, it's like, I'm bored. Oh, yeah. Like car journeys. Uh, mm. It's incredible now. They just can't. I'm sounding really old man here, but they they just can't look at a tree. They can't sort of be on the M1 and just look out the window. They'll go insane if they do it. From and like, I can remember because our relatives always lived other side of the country, so it was always just looking out the window. And they don't have that, do they? But yeah, I am sounding like. No, but I think boredom. It's going to be interesting to see how boredom, the lack, whether a lack of boredom <laughs> does affect creativity. Because I think most, you know. I think- like there's still a lack of stimulation and there's still a lack of engagement and a lack of fulfillment from a constant stream of information that you're not really interested or fulfilled by Mm. it's just a different kind of boredom it's like nothing's working nothing's fitting it's not the same as like nothing's happening i've got to use my brain it's kind of like none of this works so it's more frustration now than boredom i think do you know what i mean there's still something going on that's negative that will affect something and Mm. may well cause people to develop sort of imaginative paths in more in, in interesting ways but yeah it's definitely coming from a different place than no you can't find that out because we don't have that book and you can't do that because there's literally nothing on television because it's off now, yeah. you know, and I think that's quite interesting. And we must be losing little parts of our brain. Other parts of our brain must be developing, but um, I, I'm, this isn't neuroscience, by the way, but I'm just <laughs> the, the part of your brain which finds your way to Good Street or wherever, um, you know, we don't need that anymore, do mm. we? I, I, and that must be bad for us. Uh, like, I feel like, uh, especially with... Um, your uh, non-fiction book, um, Re- How to Reasons. Reasons to Stay Alive. Sorry, my brain is so slow. Which one do you want, the uh, most recent? The, no, the, no, the, the, the yeah, former. Re- yeah, Reasons to Stay Alive. But I was thinking about, it It must have been, a, in a way, like a search for beauty and like uh, looking out for things and changing how you're like um, yeah. interpreting the world around you. And like, I was wondering if there was any like literature and things like that that came into that, like poetry or... Yeah, I'm... I'm very much into Emily Dickinson as someone that if you're in a state of um, depression the thing is when I was severely ill when anyone is well when most people are severely ill especially with a mental illness reading can be a challenge yeah. it can be very hard so like when I was in the total depths of it the only thing I could manage were either like short poems books I'd read before often children's books because I was back at home in my parents bedroom my bedroom as a child in my parents house um, where I haven't been since I was 18 and so a lot of the books on the shelf were you know everything from Winnie the Pooh through to Stephen King and stuff I read as a teenager but books I, I knew very well and it was just this comfort of knowing whatever the book was there's a comfort in knowing the story and um so yeah books were massively important but when i was very very ill things like um you know those little collins books of quotations Mm. or anything just to get a line in or anything and there's such snobbery now going back a little bit to social media about and quite rightly sometimes but there's a lot of snobbery about inspirational quotes because a lot of people when they're reading text now 
they're reading it on Facebook or Instagram. And often it's very, sometimes it's quite empty, but very affirmative quotes. But I, I, I'm a true believer in genuine inspiration from words. I think it can happen. I think a lot of, some people's problem with it and quite cynicism about it is to do with the fact that um, a lot of it doesn't seem to acknowledge any pain or negativity. And it's just sort of, there's nothing worse when you're in a terrible state to see sort of like the literary equivalent of a field of daisies or whatever so but i I, yeah so i like short stuff but also um writers with real force like jeanette winterson was always uh, massive for me at that time because there's certain types of writer who you can almost feel it as a physical thing in every sentence a real sort of not necessarily anger, but just a force, a life force coming from the page. So, so that too. Emily Dickinson, very sort of short, succinct things. Stories. I'd been taught at university and then did an, uh, a very pretentious MA in um, modern literature. And I'd sort of been encouraged to be sniffy and snobby about story, about beginning, middle and end. It's so funny, isn't it? Because I feel like that's quite like... Uh, f- uh, it, it ebbs and flows as to how you're taught and what people, what's in fashion. Yes, and then that influences your whole life yeah. <laughs> in how you receive like things. Totally, and like in the nineties, and this was at Leeds University, um, uh, it was uh, seen as quite a radical course. But yeah, they were very, they drill it into you that you know it, it's all about style, and, and style has nothing to do with plot, and and these two things are totally separate, which is just snobbery really but when I was ill uh, you know and I used to go along with that because I was a sort of pretentious 20 something but um, then when I became ill I actually really valued for the first time in my life the comfort or I saw the comfort in a story because if you think about what a story is for a story to be a story something has to change your character changes situations change and even if that change isn't necessarily a good one it's change and if you're you know, got serious depression, the thing you feel is stuck. You feel utterly stuck. You feel plotless. You feel like you're in that state of nothing changing. So it, it's almost like a, a re- secular religion. You, you believe having faith in change in your own situation. Yeah. Now, that's, there's a lovely, in fact, in, I think it's in Reasons to Stay Alive, you've got a lovely Emily Dixon quote. And I was also uh, pleased to see that in, in both your non fiction books, you have Carl Sagan quotes. Yes. Uh, you have the. the I, I, yeah, which, I've, got, I've got Cosmos in my bag, actually. It's uh, one of my many. So, how mm-hmm. did you. Because you. I, I think in the most recent one, you, you, you quote the, uh, you know, if, if, if you meet another human, let them live, because yeah. you will not find another in a hundred million galaxies. Or, yes. uh, it's similar. And it's, but you're. You would have been a little bit too young to have seen the original series no. of Cosmos. So what? What? I don't know. I see. The thing is, I, again, going back to my education, I, I saw myself as an arts person and not a science person. I was led to believe it was almost like West Side Story of arts versus science, and which is ridiculous. But I, I, I was so committed to that idea, I got an F in science GCSE. So I really went the whole. <laughs> I did that with chemistry okay. because I wanted to do uh, art, music, and drama as my three options, and they were like no at this school we do three separate sciences and you can only pick one art and I was so angry I was like but you're depriving me of things that I want for my life that in chemistry I used to put my head on the desk as if that was productive and yeah absolutely just threw it in the bin yeah it's just like no I'm not science uh, 
yeah, I was science, sport, and arts, and I, I was just art. So, but um, yeah, so it took me to sort of grow up and realize that my one science teacher that put me off science um, wasn't the whole of science, sure. and uh, it was not the lines that you have on a sort of school timetable are kind of artificial and mm. everything. I think it's an important thing when I during science week I went to a few schools and whenever you talk to the science teachers one of the biggest problems they have is because of the way the curriculum set up is they're not allowed to teach the stories yeah. and what you get with Carl Sagan's Cosmos for certainly you know my generation was the real proper first introduction to the stories of how these human minds looked at something and went hang on a minute why is that shadow changed yeah. if we lived on a ah all I need is a stick and a well and I think I can work and and then you get a magnificent story of human imagination. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think, because quite I, I can't remember exactly the structure of it, but, you know, the fact that you've got the sweep from hieroglyphics and the Egyptians going around, and, and then I was starting to realise, because I'd always seen myself as a history person, and then you've got history. History is science, and, you know, science... I mean, occasionally, I think from the outside, there seems to be an arrogance of science and almost like a, we're at the end of science or, you know, we, we know things and in the past that are so, so primitive. But, um, you know, it, it, it's just about discovery and curiosity and learning things. And there's as much beauty. Well, it's the old, old unweaving the rainbow thing, mm. isn't it? The, the, that, you know, you can unweave the rainbow and actually there's more poetry once you understand um science but yeah it took me a long time to get to that but it, because Carl Sagan's uh, such an accessible writer mm. and it's one of those sort of classic pop science things where you end up um feeling very intelligent at the end of reading say Cosmos but it hasn't felt like you've been learning because it's just been fun and enjoyable and um yeah also Contact I think I'd seen the film Contact mm. which is his fiction but based on his ideas of how alien uh, life form could exist and I was always into those sorts of sort of stoner ideas of possible alien alien interference out there but yeah I, I, I like science uh, my book my novel of the humans actually was my most sciencey novel because that was about an alien who comes to earth and he takes over the body of a Cambridge uh, mathematics professor and he, he's there to stop human progress because <laughs> there's this thing called the Ryman hypothesis which is a real thing but it's it's just a hypothesis, and if they get the proof of the hypothesis, the hypothesis has been there since like the eighteen sixties or something. Um, and if they prove it, uh, it's to do with prime numbers. Um, if if they prove the hypothesis, then it will, in real life, it will actually lead to a lot of things being solved, and it will help engineering. It will possibly advance space travel and stuff like that. So um, there's, I, mean, I got this idea because there's a website. I'm rambling now, but there's this website no, called edge.org where every year they ask lots of people a question. And one year they ask, you know, different people, writers, scientists, um, philosophers, all kinds of people. And the question they asked in about 2013 was, what one thing would advance human life more than any other? And, and so everyone was saying, you know, various things about, politics, geopolitics and, you know, the UN and NATO and all, all these sort of real world things. Then one mathematician said, if they find a proof or if they prove the Ryman hypothesis, I don't understand that this hypothesis at all because I didn't do a, even A-level math. So it's totally beyond me. But I was fascinated in why this mathematical thing could mean so much to human life. And so I had this idea of an alien coming to Earth and wanting to stop 
human progress because it sees from a distance what humans do to each other and do to the planet and all the other species on the planet. And then if it could come and then stop all knowledge and kill a few people, all knowledge that this thing's been solved. Um, but then while he's here, uh, sees humans on their own level and actually falls in love. And oh, I love stories because that, that's like... I, I only read Arthur C. Clarke's <coughs> The Sentinel for the first time last week when I was sitting on a beach in, uh, in Lyme Regis. And, you know, that's... The, do you, have you ever read The Sentinel, which kind of inspired 2001? No, I haven't read. I haven't read much proper sci-fi, really. It's it's a lovely idea because you know obviously in the in the in the film the, the, we have these these monoliths these pillars which are kind of marks of of a, suddenly there's going to be a yeah. new burst of but in the, in the sentinel it's uh, it's basically the aliens have put a, uh, this pillar on the moon because they will only be interested in speaking to the species on the planet if they manage to get to the moon because if they manage to get to the moon so the mo- literally the moment the man touches the, the the pillar it sends a signal and that means well they're obviously interested in leaving their own planet and having a little bit of a look around so we think they're interesting because they're curious and i found that very because obviously it's very different in 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 uh, in the film that he made with with stanley kubrick but i love that story and in fact while we're on beaches this is because you were mentioning one of my favorite it's not really a science poem, but sometimes it's done like a science poem. Richard Feynman, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, yeah. he had the one about uh, standing on a beach and beginning to think about the uh, what when it had been a lifeless planet, and uh, and he has all these. And, and at the end, he says, uh, uh, "I, a universe of atoms, an atom in the universe," and it's a it's a beautiful little piece. And your beach poem, if I I I, 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 I never quite kind of know the the jump between prose and poetry, but in in your in your latest book, I love this thing again where you have a kind of a sentient beach basically yes saying do you know what i don't care what you look like and i don't care what you look like in your trunks and do you know what everyone else around here they're busy feeling me beneath their feet and looking at the sea no one cares and i think that that is a very uh you know the, the whole of the, this book which is saying which seems a lot of it is saying so many of our possible neuroses and anxieties are things that do not exist the moment that it goes beyond our own head. Yeah. yeah. My grandma used to say that to me so much growing up. She'd be like, nobody is remotely interested in what you're doing, so just get on with it. Mm. <laughs> Which I think is... Kind like, of therapeutic, <laughs> on one level. I mean, she's like, yeah, I mean, she definitely didn't mean, like, no one cares. I, I think she was like, just don't worry at all what other people are thinking. Um, yeah, well, your, your yeah, amount yeah. of worry... Is, I mean, yeah. I find that, and I don't know how much you do really, but about after a gig, even if it seems to have gone well and everyone's clapping and stuff, you still kind of go, oh, do you know what, I think someone didn't really like it, and I think there was yeah. someone, I, when I was playing Exeter the other night, first time it's happened in ages, but near the end, two people just walked out, mm. I think, just thought, this is a bit weird, isn't it? No, they probably had, had to get a train. Lovely, but I, I'm not sure, but I, I thought, the reaction, I was talking to people in the bar afterwards who had a really lovely time, but that bit where you yeah. go, and no one else in that audience... I should be thinking about the three hundred who were sitting there, yeah. and and not uh, yeah, but those two. So and they you... might be the ones who talk. They might be the ones who go to all the pubs and say, "Guess what we've been? They've gone to every pub next door on a little bicycle, riding <laughs> around to everyone, not to ever go and see me in the West Country again." I only remember one review of How to Stop Time, and that was the really atrocious oh, one no. in Scotland on Sunday, which you know, not that many people probably read. You don't even live in Scotland, you know. I don't there even on live in Scotland. Yeah, and it was like the worst review I've ever had, and was it? I could all—I've almost memorised it. Why? Why do you think? What do you think? Because I find that interesting. Because I, I, I can see why, as a matter of taste, people might not. But 
to me, it's yeah. I I find that you know, it, it, it's a well, story. Well, it started with well a weird, weird line. I didn't know how it was going to go. He said, "I've often enjoyed Matt Haig's writing, but I've never." admired him and oh. I've never admired his work and reading How to Stop Time I think I've worked out why and then it was a whole essay on why he's worked out why who was did. that I don't know who it was but it was definitely Scotland on Sunday um, but I think with things like that I've had reviews like consistently from a couple of critics who have basically have always basically been like I've had literally she's the worst comedian I've ever seen and that has ever existed and she should give up why hasn't she given up and and in retrospect I'm like I mean I mean it's possible that because of those reviews I didn't get certain opportunities or whatever but I'm still here and I'm still very happy yeah. and it's had nothing to do with it and when I realized things like that I was like oh I can completely ignore this for good and for ill yes. and it will make zero difference on what I managed to achieve or write and stuff like that and when I realised that I was like huh incredible it was yeah. like a whole new freedom you know yes I know and I, I, there's a rational side of me that does absolutely agree with you Josie it but, is then hard. There's, but then there's always that little bit of grit and if you're, if you're quite a self-critical person then there's almost like you you don't have a respect for people who criticise you, but you sort of think, oh, they might they might they might be onto something. If and you're, you're like, a self-critical person already, you've already got the harshest yeah, critic exactly. in the world, right? Exactly. No, no, we found yet again social media has revealed yeah. that we're very often not the harshest critics of ourselves ever. <laughs> but that's I mean, I find that an interesting thing as well, is the fact that you are by by being an uh, an author, you you take the risk of being in, in you know in public space and. Uh, um, uh, you know, reasons to stay alive. We talk, you know, th- all of that self doubt. And I, I, I was trying to work it out myself as you know, someone who, who often self doubting and you know, kind of some self loathing. But at the same time, you go, but I'm going to now place myself in front of strangers. Yeah. Now that's a, in one way that seems to be the possibility of going, I can control the situation. And in another way, it places a great deal more jeopardy, doesn't it, into the kind of yeah. the possibilities. No, totally. I mean, I've got total admiration for you and Josie the fact that you can just do you know stand up in front of people and but and, I think you just uh, have to present. switch it off because if you start thinking oh there's 300 people in the audience and chances are maybe one of them has a 100% uncritical joyful reaction to this and everyone else is a thinking adult yeah. who's probably like I quite enjoyed that that was good enough you know and then you know on the other side of the spectrum we've got people who are like not only do I hate this person I used to like them and now I hate <laughs> them more than I could possibly and if you think about that it's like thinking of like 300 clocks ticking yes. slightly at odds with each other and, and about how everyone is this vast yeah. universe of imagination and thought and you can't do it you just have to kind of go here I am yeah. striding along and everyone has given me a five star review without thinking <laughs> you know and I suppose at least you know what you're saying like, I, I recently went to America and America well there's a lot of debate in that in terms of neuroscience now Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. well, yeah. Also, shout out to Dean Burnett for being so bold and great in the face of people really, really um, like coming back in a social media way when he's been counteracting a lot of the uh, Johan Hari stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the happy brain is Dean Burnett's new book. Sorry, back to you. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so I, I, I went to America and I thought it was going to be like the UK where generally a, a British book event, you're, you're talking to someone. And you don't have to worry about time. You don't have to worry about what you're saying because you, they're just going to ask you some questions and they're going to get it for the audience. And in America, you just got... I was in San Diego, the first event 
and it was just a lectern and then it was just like me <laughs> and I was like rambling for an hour of sort of like vaguely self-deprecating British stuff and their faces were wide open then I chose the one reading which had the F word in and I didn't realise it did and then seven people walked out so which narrowed the audience cut down the audience by 20% of what it was and uh, just was, like you know I thought I'm really bad at this and I, I feel like sometimes in events in the UK I'm okay I'm quite good I get scared. They're doing a big, big, my biggest sort of launch ever for notes with like 900 people, which probably isn't that big for you guys. But like for a book event, that's big, isn't oh, it? Oh, it definitely is. We're very niche. Like, We're niche. Yeah. <laughs> I like, you know, already I'm thinking, oh my God. But, um, so where's that going to be? Where are you doing the big? Um, I, it's going to be on the South Bank, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth Hall thing. Lovely. Well, the nice thing is, though, that if you are very nervous, they'll presume it's a very clever performance based around what you're tackling with, within the book. Yeah, and, you know. but actually, that's weird. Yeah, I think with reasons to stay alive, which everyone thought I'd be really nervous doing those events. I was so almost confident and comfortable um, talking about depression and suicide and all these most personal things in my life. I was fine with. I mean, the audience questions with those was quite strange. Though. You'd get a lot of people trying to, you know, win you over to Jesus and um, oh, wow. you know, t- so many people come out, especially people actually who've had. You know, it's not just people who haven't had any mental illness problems it's often people who have and they're better and then they're desperately telling you that this is absolutely the way they got better and it's often reading the bible or, and um, then you're like no no the book is literally talking about how i did this. yes so, exactly <laughs> but also it must be interesting because like i found my only comparison is i did a stand-up show that was like suddenly a lot more open about my personal life than i'd ever been and i found like it's changed how i think and write because of it because at first you're like, I can't imagine putting this out there. And then you're like, oh, I've put it out there. I might as well keep going. And did you find that after you'd written uh, this book that your fiction changed because you'd been so open in the non-fiction? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it has, actually. I think it's changed in two ways. I think that was the sort of like turning point. I think like I wrote some novels um, which weren't very widely read in my 20s, which are so bleak so pessimistic there's one called the possession of mr cave i think my writing's quite good in it but everyone dies and it, it's there's no glimmer of light at all and i think i after reasons to stay alive and the novel the humans I, I dared to be a bit more optimistic and i think you know this sounds so corny but i think becoming a parent as well slightly changed my idea of creativity in that if you're putting something out into the world try and have some kind of you know it's an arrogant thing to do anyway isn't it putting something out but we've got enough stuff already we've got we're not going to read all the books you know we're not going to see all yeah, the yeah you say that in this one where you go <laughs> that's always to me is one of the most terrifying things you talk about the number of books that are currently in existence which was even bigger than i imagine and i, I just think of the wall at home that i look at and go not yeah. even think about the other rooms just the, yeah. the front room where they're all double stacked. And I go, well, I'm not even going to finish those before I die. And I've got the room, the back room, and then upstairs. And yeah, it's been they're You're good at, at the very least, having a dip in. Yeah. But like, I'm really Flippity like... jib at me. Mm. No, but it's good because... I do that, I'm a dipper. But you it's not? better. No, because I'm even... And, and I see now how much at school and at uni it hampered me. But I was very much like, I'm going to commit, I'm going to read all of this book of criticism, even though one chapter is relevant to what one I'm doing. One at a time as well. Yes, exactly. Very stupid, like much better. Well, life is short. I'm going to read a bit of this chapter. I'm going to keep dipping through. I'm going to underline. I'm going to get what I can from this because 
I've got better now at doing there will be moments where I go right I have to complete a certain number of books in a week and then I don't have to panic about the fact that I'm reading a book about shamanism at the moment because I've just become really interested in kind of different shamanic thinking things and then also I've got a couple of novels that I've got to read and, and I think right as long as I've finished like two or three this week of the shorter books that'll be alright mm. But I do like that thing of going and this. In fact, I mean, you know, in reading your books in particular, I think because you know the, the the quotations and the ideas and a lot of the ideas that you you see in the nonfiction work, you think, oh, I think there is a paper on that, or I think there was an article that I read, or I think someone else has. It. And then you want to. That's actually one of the things I find most frustrating now. In in some of mass media, they're always trying to go, no, 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 make it simpler and explain it. And yet, the great thing is, there's never been so many different ways of finding out information. So if anything, yeah. things should have become more difficult and references should never have you know when you watch documentaries now where they have to keep saying every five minutes now as we discovered a little bit earlier and you think they never used to do that Carl Sagan's Cosmos didn't have him constantly recapping otherwise he wouldn't have got anywhere (laughs) yeah so it's um, sorry you don't want to watch Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares you'll be furious Oh, do you know what? Recap. Yeah. No, I watched that the other day, and I thought yeah. they'd given away the ending. She was furious, and she chucked him out because she didn't like what he said about the cakes. <laughs> I thought it looked and, terrible. Well, yeah, um, they're doing that because they're assuming you haven't watched it. You're just yeah. sort of flicking, aren't you? And like, like it's from America, isn't it? Where they have like they've always had seven thousand channels. And yeah. Um, you were saying that your ideas of creativity had changed since you had kids, and I feel yes. like we went on a detour, yes. and I'd like to hear yes, more so about that. We did, and it was a good question. And um, yeah, I feel like I've I, I I'm not scared of happy endings, or at least ambiguously happy endings anymore. And I feel like you know, it, even though it's fiction, even though it's lies in one sense, um, you know, the true the emotional stuff has to ring true, even if you're writing about the zombie apocalypse it has there has to be some sort of truth that mm. you're relating to and i think um i think i used to be very intimidated as a writer and i used to get a kind of version of stage fright even though it's just you at, on your laptop where you're thinking oh i'm a capital a author and i've got to be like this and i i used to have a very posh um publisher literary publisher who who, who published all the sort of booker prizey stuff and i was like feeling total total imposter syndrome and thinking oh I've got to be like this and and then I just came to a point where I realised it's just storytelling it's just telling a story it's the oldest thing it's it's far older than books it's sitting around a campfire it's telling a story and we we, because of marketing and because of I don't know modernism and and, um, pretentious degrees in Leeds University or whatever we've got this system where there's high and low there's literary and commercial like they're separate things like a commercial book isn't literature or a literary book I can't so uh, and you're very much encouraged as a um, writer starting off especially if if you're not known to the wider world and you're just starting off to, to pick your genre and pick your category and I, I sort of fell for that um, quite a bit and, and I think um, A because of the subject but B because people read and responded to Reasons to Stay Alive it just gave me that confidence to just sort of exist where I want to exist and not worry about appealing to certain people Or and uh, Notes on a Nervous Planet is out imminently July July uh, I haven't yet seen yeah, so I'm, I'm quite yeah I'm actually quite scared about that one um yeah, it's interesting. I think it's because it's a follow-up to Reasons to Stay Alive. But it's a different... Also, in some ways, it's different because that's what I found interesting. When, when I was reading Reasons to uh, Stay Alive, I thought, for some people, the difficulty of writing about mental health problems is sometimes that when you're out of the 
problem when you when when you're at, at a point where it's not going on it sometimes almost seems like well I don't think I could have ever felt like that how could I have ever been like yeah. that and so it becomes this fictional time and, and I know various people because yours is very much about both anxiety with depression yeah. and others too that uh, I've oh. spoken to other people said yeah when, when it's not going on sometimes they go well I'll never be like that again because that was madness it was just nonsense and then they go oh no it's not gone and then it becomes incredibly real but it be- yeah, and I, th- I think for me, the, the, the thing that helped me get better was to stop trying to get better, almost. Mm-hmm. To tr- stop imagining there'd be a point at which you're, like, 100% in yeah. full mental health forever. Because that was depressing in itself. So you get depressed about depression. You get anxious about anxiety. You can't do anything about depression and anxiety necessarily, but you can do something about getting depressed about having them. So I was trying to sort of destigmatize myself and just accept things, you know. Um, let yourself live. Let yourself live and let yourself like, you know, feel that, you know, so some of those th- moments were very very scary. And I think in some ways I won't go quite back to where I was in reason state like because one of the bewildering things when you first become ill with something like that is you've never had it before. So you don't actually know you could get out of it. Once you've been out of it, at least you know okay, I, I've been ill 17 times before, but I've got better 17 times before. So you have a little bit more perspective and you, you, you can hack your own brain a little bit and stop the vicious circles. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's just about accepting it. And I think writing generally is therapy, but writing Reasons to Stay Alive actually made me better. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wrote it in quite a happy patch anyway. It was summery and I was feeling quite good and very different to the person I was. But I think writing it... and I think the reason therapy is often as effective as pills is because you're externalising something very internal. And I think writing does that. And, and I think the cliche about writers being and bookish people being introverted is kind of missing the point. It's, it's kind of like writing is almost like deep level socialising. You're sort of connecting at a deep point and you're externalising something. Mm. I wanted to no, ask. No, you can't. Time That's a shame. Uh, notes on nervous panic. Like, this so is what I would say. Okay. Is I think well, it's interesting. It's a cliffhanger. No, this becomes a cliffhanger. No, no, but do it. Just give me a second. I think it's in interesting the next because Matt Haig. in this there was a bit of chat about social media and also about of chat about like critical receptions and anxiety around that. But like, what's it, you know really big about like reasons to stay alive is how many people connected with it in such a positive way and what a big difference it made to people and even like you know having some of you interacting with people on social media and having some of their experiences mm. in it as well and like I think in lots of ways like that's a good counterpoint to all the yeah. other stuff you know like it's it's good to put something out there that's that vulnerable because other people will connect in a really positive way I, to- I totally think that's true about mental health. I think there is a contagious reaction and books are a very important part of that because books are public and private at once. So, you know, they're public things that you can go into a shop and buy, but then you sort of read them in a sort of quiet place at home. And I think with mental health especially, um, it's a good sort of way in. And I think also a lot of people who are ill can't necessarily articulate what they're feeling so it's nice to have a book a tv show whatever it is to point to and say that's me that's how i'm feeling and being nervous about notes on a nervous planet is that partly because whereas in some ways reasons stay alive it's it's a a lot of it is looking at a past even though there is a presence there whereas notes on nervous planet is 
well, a, a moving thing because it's you dealing with yeah. right. How do we, as a broad group of people, as you were saying before, it's an individual story, though it is a yes. story which a lot of people connect to. Whereas Notes and Nervous Planet is kind of going. I, I think these systems will work, and hopefully this will help. In a weird way, I didn't mind what people said about Reason to Stay Alive because I thought, well, it's my my reality. So you know, you don't know my reality, you don't know my mind. So that's fine. With Notes on a Nervous Planet, I'm sticking my head above the parapet a bit more because I'm saying, oh, this is a what what's making us mad about the modern world um but i feel like in a connected age we are obviously influencing each other's psychology and um so i, I like the idea of looking at a collective kind of nervous breakdown which occasionally seems to be happening and how how we can stay sane and immunize ourselves from that because it's not a new thing to talk about health having a sort of social context we talk about physical health all the time having a social context whether it's alcohol passive smoking um diets whatever but we, we we're not quite talking about our minds in the same way or ways to protect ourselves so we've got this technology that's changing so fast within the space of like a decade it's totally transformed all of our lives and yet no one's worked out um the psychological fallout and i haven't worked it out either but i'm just sort of throwing some questions out there no, well, I, th- I thought there was a lot in it where you just kind of go, yeah, that, ah, that's... It's, it's sometimes it's that reminder, isn't it, as you were saying, that bit where you write about disconnecting from the internet, but at the same time mention the fact that, and as I write this, yeah. just been on Twitter. And I think absolutely. it is that bit which says it, it's not... Well, yeah, because I, like, I, I, I cringe when my, those non-fiction books are classed as self-help, because I think with a self-help book, the, the, the person giving the advice is always in the sort of higher place and there like I'm writing from the sort of low place and I'm like saying oh what's going on and da 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 well I liked it oh, <laughs> in fact Robin, I've read you. three of your books now in uh, all of them I don't spend more than a day reading them I read the once I start them I just go right through them yeah. it's one of those things which I really enjoy short books uh, Yes, they are exactly the right length for those who are less tenacious, and I am one. Love uh, a whereas chapter. Josie hasn't finished reading a Rebecca Solnit book that she started oh, uh, in episode three. It's a deliberate un- choice. It's a deliberate choice. Um, thank you very much, Matt Haig. And Thanks, uh, go Robin. on Thanks, to the Canagate website and uh, follow uh, Matt Haig nicely on Twitter. Yeah, because if anyone then attacks you afterwards yeah. about the book and how wrong it is, you merely go, it's a bit like Laura Bates on Everyday Sexism. The horrible thing about that is uh, the perpetual proving of the point yeah. When you see some of the things that she's had to deal with, but um, that's we, we did a thing with Laura Bates the other yeah, day. Yeah, no, she's just great. Shocks me every time some of the things you hear. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much to everyone who supports us via uh, Patreon, which allows us to keep making these. And uh, this week we would like to thank Chris Coffey, Samuel Clements, Karen Risby, Dulcie Pomerantz Trifts, Kirsty Riley, Diffreg Williams. Gabrielle Flexer, Gregory Monk, Traveller, and of course we'd like to thank Jack Brown. Thank you to those and all our patrons. If you'd like to become a patron from just a dollar an episode with a maximum of $3 a month, we'll never charge you for more than three episodes a month. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can do that. Or at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles where you'll find all the past episodes and all the reading lists from every episode as well. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back with a new episode next week. Or we may actually see you before next week's episode at the Albert Hall on Monday with uh, Book Shambles Live, Alan Moore, Lucy Green, June 4th. Tickets available from royalalberthall.com. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 
Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.